0: Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have a couple of return guests, Dan Oblinger and Alan Sang. They are negotiation coaches. I'm going to let them give their backgrounds because they're very interesting uh, histories. So, Alan, first of all, would you mind giving us 60 seconds on your background, please?
1: Yes, I'll just introduce my stepbrother for you, and he can do it for me. My brother oh mother Dan Oblinger, is a hostage and crisis negotiator by night. By day, he's a business negotiator and a property investor. He's got five kids that they homeschool. So he has a lot on his plate. He has partnered <laughs> with uh, Alan, and that's me. And what we do is we provide group coaching and consulting to companies.
0: So between you, you have 11 children. That sounds like a hell of a lot of negotiation.
1: That's why we're avoiding each other right now, because once the kids get together, it will be a zoo.
0: (laughs) Excellent. So, Dan, can you introduce Alan, please?
2: Yes, uh, Alan Zhang, 20 years ago, he escaped from a a high-security, maximum lockdown psychiatric uh, facility, and he's never looked back.
1: (laughs) He's not wrong. He's not wrong.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Alan is a a true uh, cultural traveler. He hails from Hong Kong, Ghana, and the the mountains of Virginia all at the same time. He is my stepbrother. He is the co-creator of the negotiation tribe with me, but mostly I would say he's probably one of the best coaches that I know. And he's definitely the best negotiation coach that I know. He's got the heart of a teacher and the tongue of a viper and, uh, He's uh, he's quite the friend. Keeps you on your toes.
0: Excellent. Good stuff. Okay, so today's topic is around creating a negotiation culture. So let's start out with some of the blind spots. So Alan, can we kick off um, with some blind spots that you see when you first start working with organizations?
1: When I first work with organizations, this is where, if I say this, we are going to lose clients, Dan. So here it goes. Just brace yourself. Oh, just say it. We have too many as it is. The problem, the biggest problem I see is leadership thinking is the people problem. So people, people in leadership huh. are the ones that bring us in, right? So what happened is they'll say, our guys are not doing this. Our guys are doing that. They're doing something they shouldn't do, or they're not doing something we want them to do. Ultimately, whether it's in how how they're incentivized or how they're encouraged, how they're recognized, those things build culture. The best is to start from the top. The most difficult way is to impact and influence culture from the bottom. Because as soon as things get difficult and tough, everything goes out the window. because leadership is going to impose their way of doing things.
0: Okay, I I see this a lot in sales. And in fact, I read a truly depressing article last week about the SaaS industry, so software as a service. And they were talking about why profits are so horrible in the SaaS industry. Of the top 60 SaaS companies on the planet, the median profit margin is 0%. And they blamed... People and instead of looking in the ugly mirror and looking at leadership and investors, they blame the people. So, Dan, let's move into um, the kind of mistakes you see leadership perpetrating and encouraging their uh, sales teams to fall into.
2: Yeah, I think here's the biggest one: is that we want technical solutions for people problems. Yeah. We want technical uh, solutions for everything. If you have a problem with your culture and you're a leader, when you call me or Alan, you typically say, what do I need to do to fix this? And it's always, again, it's like software as a service. Yeah, I just need to buy a subscription to something for a little bit and then it'll be fixed. And then I cannot buy that thing anymore. And we'll have a healthy culture where everybody sells and meets their quotas and it gets along with each other and shares leads. And that's just not the case. People are not technical problems. And so therefore, there's no technical solution for people or any of their foibles. So it's actually, it's, a, it's adaptive work. And the, you know sales is an adaptive endeavor. Negotiations, I think is probably the, the most adaptive activity that uh, humans can do. Leadership and executive management are adaptive endeavors, which means there's no clear solution. In fact, usually there's no solution at all. You have to craft your way out of it. So when we look like, let's, let's really dial into culture. So maybe a sales team's culture. Alan and I would evaluate that on the basis of what kind of negotiation culture does the team have? What kind of listening and discovery culture and habits do they have? Now you're talking about it's when I say adaptive, it's an experimental solution process and it's going to require people to take risks and make mistakes and dial in the culture. And I think this is the biggest thing that people miss when I say people, leaders, decision-makers, the purse string people is culture is people. You don't have a culture that's like a product that you can change, sell, buy, trade. Your culture is largely a a function of the people you've chosen to have on your team. If you want to change your culture, people will have to change or you're going to have to change the people. And by that, I mean, sometimes people get voted off the island, the culture island. So, and those are all hard decisions that everybody has to make. It's a hard decision to change your habits. It's a hard decision for a leader to try to motivate somebody to change. And it's definitely hard for leaders to let people go. But that's the only way that culture improves, is by improving people.
0: I read a really interesting article by Charles Landon on his podcast, uh, Columbus's Egg. And uh, he put in place a really interesting matrix between getting it right and doing it right. And the received wisdom is you fire people who don't get it right or do it right. And you're looking for that nirvana in the top right-hand quadrant, Uh, where they're doing both well. However, you might be having people doing it right, but they're not necessarily getting it right. And so these people can be incredibly divisive. And one of the challenges that a lot of organizations face is often they will have a lone wolf salesperson or a top performer, and they hang on to them despite the fact they probably shouldn't. So why is it that leaders do that? I think the answer is obvious at a surface level, but at a a real visceral level, I suspect there's some interesting causes.
1: Uh, Dan, you want to go first? So decisions
2: are driven by vision and our vision's informed by our biases and our emotions and and our experiences. And so when you have a a leader in a situation where I have somebody I know is not doing things the right way, but they're getting results, then there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of motivation to make a decision They'll They'll probably delay it. You can delay it indefinitely. If they're still bringing in money, then you can delay it. And and you're not doing the right thing, which is taking care of your culture. Cause if you could trade one little wolf for 10 people that work together and have very similar results. What's better for the organization, and what's better for you as the leader? By the way, I'm a lazy leader. I'd, I'd rather work less, <laughs> so I'd rather build a strong culture that works for us. But uh, I think it's oftentimes it is a simpler and an easier path to let one person overproduce, but they tend to
1: poison the well.
0: So, Alan, your thoughts?
1: I see it very similar to Dan, um, but I see it from a different perspective in that. It comes down to uncompromising core values. When a company says something, but they do something different, uh, it creates confusion and frustration within the team. Mm-hmm. They would talk about team culture, but then they're gonna value one person over another. Maybe the, the the producer gets to become the prima donna. They get to act and say and do whatever they want and create trauma and tension within the organization. But because they produce certain results, they get a pass. But what happens is it actually creates the culture that we're talking about that is toxic. So if the company says, this is how we're going to do it, we are going to value performance over everything, then everybody knows that's how it's going to be measured. But if they say we value team culture, but then when it actually comes down to how they treat people and the organization treats people differently and it's no longer a team culture, that's when there's a, there's a there's a problem there. The previous one is like, hey, everyone for themselves is competitive. This is a, a dog-eat-dog culture. Go for it, guys. And everybody's going to have fun. But when you have a culture where people say, this is a family. We treat our employees like family. We work as a team. We move forward as a team. And everything is, this is how it's going to work, right? It's a flat organization and then there's some there's one person that is valued over others, that's when there's attention, that's when it becomes toxic. 100%. That's when you don't really
0: want what you call for more of. So you end up creating a culture with bad actors and that's exceptionally poisonous. In my experience, that's often driven not only by bad leadership or bad culture, but also by the unintended consequences Of the incentive system that drives the wrong behavior. And then that becomes ingrained in people's habits. So, when you're working with leaders, what kind of questions are you asking around the incentive and compensation schemes in order to stop driving the unintended consequence?
2: We start with what Alan just described those core principles. If Alan's working, if it's pure strategy, Alan, that's his forte. And he'll tell you, he wants three words. And these three words have to accurately describe the values and culture. And then those will be used as the measuring sticks. All right. And without going too deep into those woods, now we apply it to like cultural activities related to, let's say negotiations. We want a a clear mission and purpose from the people that we work with. And if we're working with an organization, they too can have a clear mission And it has to be crystal clear to everyone. One of the greatest poisons in an organization is confusion. It happens very quickly. Leaders think they communicate really well. And they get off mission with their communications. If they don't clearly define what it is we're doing and why and how, then uh, everyone's left to their own devices. And then what happens is that's when the grumbling starts in the lower decks. Okay, that's when the mutiny (laughs) starts. Is because you know, Alan didn't know what he's doing. Or Alan told me this. What did he tell you? Well, he told me something slightly different. In Alan's mind, he said the same thing. But if we are not careful with our culture, specifically with our mission and our purpose and everything we do, confusion begins. And that's when people start checking out. So we, we start with a clear mission and purpose. It has to be mission-driven, everything we do. Because that's what keeps people on the same page, moving in the same direction, oriented towards the same obstacles and opportunities.
0: So- Who provides the checks and balances for the leaders and holds them to account to stay true to that mission? Alan?
1: So what I'm hearing is your your question is who holds these leaders to accountability, right? Depends on the size of the organization, right? You have the board of directors for large organizations. For smaller ones, the CEO and the president and the owner is the same person. In that case, there's not a lot of people that can hold them accountable other than Someone like me that they hire to come in, and the employees will go, "Hey, Alan, so-and-so only listens to you." That's not, that real, that's not the real case, but that's how the employees view it. Because the employees feel like their voice, they're not heard. I want to add a little bit to what Dan said earlier. The importance of having a, a valid and clear mission and purpose, knowing, knowing the values, is like the North Star. It is, if I'm gonna help someone with negotiation, usually they bring me in or Dan in and we help them with a negotiation, right? But sooner or later, when the deal gets big, it has to align with their mission. What is the long-term vision for the company? Because if we help them land a deal and we win it, Marcus, and we win the deal, but it takes them off course, then we have actually done the company a disservice. So sooner or later, I need to know what is the mission of the company? Where do they want to go? What are their values? That way, when we're in a negotiation, we don't have to compromise. We can win a deal. And then later, we realize we have overcommitted. And now we have to compromise on our values and what we believe in order to deliver the product or services that they sold.
0: So the question that I hear a lot from founders, from CEOs is, where do I start? With determining and
1: defining this mission? Again, it goes back to the phase of the company. A lot of times, when you're in the survival mode, you're in the growing mode, you you are a startup and you're just like, I just need business. I just need cash flow. A lot of times, they don't really think that much about mission and purpose. They just need the cash flow to even pay the bills. But then there's a critical point at which point they have to decide who are we going to work with? And the sooner they decide that, the better. Even if it's a startup, I encourage them to get have a clear value, mission, vision, uh, target uh, clients. If they don't have that, it gets everything. Everything gets difficult. But the bigger the organization, the clearer that needs to the, the clearer the the mission and vision needs to be, and the sales team needs to buy in, and they need to be held accountable to. The clients that you're bringing in, the customers you bring in, are they going to move our efforts forward? Or are they going to distract us? Okay,
0: so if I understand in summary what you're saying, I understand who it is you serve, i.e., your ideal customer, what problems you are going to help them to solve, and what outcomes you're going to help them deliver.
1: This is and basic stuff, Marcus. I, I, I
0: understand, but a lot of people don't get it because when they talk about mission and vision, they confuse the two. And once you've done that, so who, What and how? How are we going to deliver it? And who is not our customer? And that, I think, is a really important question that you need to be very clear about. Because what I see many organizations do, particularly if their pipeline is weak or empty or inconsistent, is they chase anything and everyone. Compromise. Uh, And I think another major catalyst to deviating people from their mission is bad investors, speculators, masquerading as investors. And what they do is they drive the business to go for growth at any cost. And that undermines the potential to build a long-lived business with highly engaged employees and lifetime customers. So your thoughts on that, Dan?
2: Yeah, so what's interesting is I've been 20 years in law enforcement here in, in America, in the United States. And I mean, we talk a lot about vicious cycles and I'm sure Marcus, I mean, from reading your content, watching your content, I mean, you t- if you get a bad culture going, it just begins to build upon itself. Right. And just bad things start to happen. But there's also something called a virtuous cycle. And what, what happens when you get a mission, right? When you properly define who you are, who you serve and how, and when you have a good purpose. So in this interaction with this ideal client, this is what we will try to accomplish for them. And this would be an ideal outcome for us. If we've got that clearly defined, what happens is uh, dilemmas. That's one of my favorite things. That's kind of how I make my money is dilemmas arise. So there's competing interests. So the client wants us you know, to deliver this product. That's great. We're going to make money, but they also want a discount. Or two clients want the same thing at the same time. Who, who do we serve first, right? Or, you know, so anyhow, all these dilemmas develop. And where the value of the, the clear mission and valid purpose comes is in resolving dilemmas. Because in 20 years of law enforcement, you have to make good decisions very rapidly. And you have to, and it's life or death in many cases, especially in, in hostage negotiations. And what I've found is you can make rapid decisions that are good and have great effects in that cycle when you've properly thought out that mission and purpose beforehand. Because you can very clearly say, well, you know, this would be good and that would be good, but because of our mission and purpose, obviously we need to do this for now. And so you can go through dilemmas and process them so fast that you can take advantage of opportunities that other people that get stuck in and in decisiveness, they can't. And so that virtue, that, and then that virtuous cycle becomes even better because you're taking advantage of these opportunities, your dilemmas becoming less frequent and less intense and the mission and purpose now win the day but the opposite can be true too. When you're confused, other people get confused around you. And one of the most interesting effects of having a clear mission and purpose or not is the confidence and the cool-headedness you have in resolving problems with people. They gravitate towards that. People wanna do business with people that are consummate professionals. And I've found the way that I judge my peers is, do they have a valid and clear mission and purpose when they resolve dilemmas? Because they're gonna look really confident and competent when they do it. And then, again, the opposite is true, too.
0: Ambiguity is the mother of all fubars, and it's also the mother of all conflicts. In <laughs> and uh, again, I hope that the audience is taking this point away, that mission and values are the filter through which you make your decisions. So decisions can be made confidently and quickly if you don't have them then you'll be confused, you'll vacillate, and also you'll send a mixed message to your people, as well as your customers, your suppliers, your partners. So it is an imperative. It's not something soft and fluffy. And whilst, yes, we're all in business to make money, the reality is we're in business for more than that. If you just have a business that's there to just make money, it becomes a soulless corporation. And you start to attract those people who might get it done, but they don't necessarily get it done right. And it then creates that downward spiral as opposed to the virtuous spiral. So Alan, let's come back to uh, designing the team and the negotiation that goes on around that. When you're designing a negotiation team and making sure that you have the right elements, the right components, what do you look for in terms of setting that foundation?
1: When we're looking for team, it actually goes back to what we just finished talking about, which is the mission and values. It starts with hiring and recruiting the right people with, with uh, values that align with your company. So that is the, the first layer, layer of filter. That is a negotiation when you're interviewing and hiring. And these things are usually platitudes for most companies. You know that, and Dan knows that, right? Is uh, they say we have uh, uh, many companies I walk into. They said I will say, what What are your core values? Do you have any core values? I say yes, we do. What are they? And most of them will do this. Uh, I think we have respect on there somewhere. <laughs> any more? Mm, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. So in negotiation, this is where values and mission are actually put to. They're put to work on a daily basis. For every negotiation, we have to go, does this move our corporate values and our, our mission forward? Yes or no? If it doesn't, then we know where how to make a decision. Do we reject that, that proposal and negotiate those terms? But in terms of team, to go, go back to the team, how do we build it? We build it first with, is it the right person for the company? Are they going to help move, move it forward? Are they coachable? Right? Do they have a hunger to learn? And this is where a lot of companies make a mistake. They hire people that have a hunger to learn, Marcus, and you'll know this, but they don't have the courage to execute. So they learn and learn and learn, and they'll go to podcasts, they would learn from books, they will go to read blogs, and they'll go to YouTube, and they'll learn, absorb, but they have a fear of execution. Their fear of conflict, the fear of, having difficult conversations with their customers, their clients, and their suppliers. So this applies to both procurement or sales or customer service or the technical or IT team, the ability to have difficult conversations when the stakes are high. So they have to have courage. They have to align with the the, the values. They have to be coachable. They have to be good listeners. They have to have an innate ability to just, they have to be respectful, Marcus. I've seen people that are very smart, but they're not respectful. Uh, Another attribute of uh, building a team is, are they good decision makers? Or do we have to teach them how to make decisions? Obviously, if they are good and effective at decision making, then you're gonna have a a faster uh, moving team. Otherwise, now you have to train them on decision-making. Decision-making, respect, being a good listener, having curiosity, building a team. It starts with building a team there and then having a, a system that the whole team can get on together, like a common language. If I talk to Dan and just say, what's the vision here? Or if I say, can you QQ this? He'll know exactly what I mean by that. I don't have to explain to a, to a new sales guy, this is what I mean. And when I say vision, it doesn't really mean the vision as in corporate vision. I'm talking about the vision of pain. What is going to drive that decision? If I tell Dan, it's time for a cul-de-sac, he'll know what I'm talking about. Right? But most people wouldn't. So having a common internal language will be key in building a team when we are working with a, a culture, you look at every culture and they have their own language. Even in China, you look at the different tribes or villages, each village have their own dialect. They all write Chinese the same way, but they're spoken in such a way that no other, no other outsiders can understand what they're saying. So one village if they choose to communicate with each other, can write it out and they can communicate and they can speak the Mandarin language, which is a national language. But then they have a dialect. The dialect keeps other cultures or other villagers from knowing what they're saying. Just like my parents would speak the their dialect and they never taught the kids. So that our, my mom and dad can speak and talk about the kids and we have no idea what they're talking about. So when there's a, comp- a company culture, there's a company language. That language is key. It's more important than whether they're an individualist, they're extrovert, introvert. That language brings the whole group of people together. And that's one of the things that Dan and I do when we are coaching a team is to first create the opportunity for them to learn a common language. To
0: add to what you said in terms of recruiting, I think it's vital that people have a strong concept of who they are, and they're comfortable in their own skin. You mentioned coachability. I think something else that's very important is the ability to manage adversity, particularly if you're in a role where you are going to have to negotiate. You can have creative conflict. You can have constructive conflict, but you need to be ready to get down and dirty and roll up your sleeves. And sometimes you're going to have to go into all-out fights respectfully, but you're going to need to be able to manage that. I think also endurance is important. And that tenacity is key. Intelligence, problem solving, and a high level of accountability is important. I think a good memory Is something that we should look for as well so that people stay on track. They can see what's going on and they can recall and join the dots. And the one other element, which I think is really important, which is often missed, is gratitude. I think people who are genuinely grateful for what they have are more attractive than people who are constantly whining, bitching, moaning, and complaining about how hard done by they are. So when you are looking to build a team, Make sure that you're looking for these winning qualities, because if you're going to have to go to bat together, then you need to make sure that there is that level of that baseline of consistent quality within the team.
2: Dan anything to add? You know, when I hire hostage negotiators, which I do pretty frequently now being the in the leadership of the team, we look for humility, and humility is not passiveness. It's not meekness. Humility means I know who I am. I know what I can do. And I'm open to other people making me better at those things. I'm the Catholic. So, you know, St. Francis de Sales, I believe was said, be yourself, but do it well. That's what a good culture does is it takes people, meets them where they're at, and then it, it challenges them to get better for the good of the team. And that that's an act of humility. So we look for that. We actually test for that in our hiring process in our interviews and in our role-playing scenarios, the qualifying practicals. We look for that. Are you teachable? You know, are you confident, but are you open to coaching? That's a really critical and valuable trait to have in a team member.
1: Excellent. And Alan, I know you had something to add. I was just talking about when you said one of the, the attributes you're looking for is the ability to manage conflict. What Dan and I do is we we break that down into those attributes that I mentioned earlier. In managing conflict, it's being a good listener having the courage to face conflict. There are some people that just says, I'm averse to conflict. I run away. So that's not a sign of a good negotiator. Curiosity, the ability to manage emotions, the ability to be aware of emotions with your counterpart. Uh, all those uh we break down the managing of uh, conflict into these skills. And that's actually what we, we coach and train.
0: Okay, so if we dig a little bit deeper. You've now got your team. What are the different component qualities that you're looking for or the skills that you need to bring so that you have an interdependent team and you can chop and change the active participant to make sure that your team is able to adapt no matter what is uh, thrown
1: at them? Alan? The biggest obstacle when it comes to building that team and working together is fear and ego. Ego and fear prevents them from being transparent, from holding each other accountable, for being forthright, from uh, doing role plays and training and being vulnerable and uh, being upfront with where they're struggling so that others can actually help them. Dan? Okay. Dan? Dan? I mean, if we they can't hear the we protect
2: ourselves. Yeah, if we protect ourselves and guard ourselves from awkwardness and embarrassment of failure, then you can't ever get good. Building habits requires hard work and risk. And I think that's the biggest thing is you as a as a cultural influencer, whether you're the leader or a consultant like Alan and I brought in, or whoever is in charge of this process, you have to get people to feel safe enough to make mistakes and and take risks and fail and then learn. And that is, I mean, it's easier said than done. This is a very, it's a simple thing, but it's very, very, very hard.
0: And there's one other critical component, which is that you don't punish people when they fail in role.
2: Yeah.
0: You punish them for hiding
2: their failure.
0: Yes. Hiding a failure is a cardinal sin. But failing, that's just part and parcel of life. It's part of the human conditional, mm-hmm. uh, it's universal, yeah. it's unavoidable. <laughs> but yeah. the, the mistake leaders make is they punish people or they diminish them. And this is where leadership really needs to sort its act out, because they become punitive, they become persecuting. And then you end up with is people perform to the lowest common denominator to avoid being noticed or punished. You've got to avoid the other side, which is you have the rescuer. And the rescuer is mollycoddling and permissive, or they interfere and they help without boundaries or permission. So one of the challenges here is making sure that you end up with a leader who is operating from the winner's triangle, which is that they are vulnerable, they're nurturing and empathic, yet they can be assertive as well. and what they don't do is they don't take part shots at the identity of the human being, the person who's working in their team. They build them up. And that's a very scarce quality in management.
1: Oh, it seems like you're talking about the empowerment dynamic, the power of TED, the drama triangle. Uh,
0: I'm Ted. not familiar with that. Describe it.
1: Uh, so you have, you have this uh, relationship. There's a victim mindset or a person that considers themselves a victim. What they have a tendency to do. Uh, the, the,
0: the, the triangle.
1: Yeah. So they they have a tendency to find a, a yeah. persecutor or a rescuer, right? So they, they look for 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 yeah. a reason for why they're failing and they turn that reason into a persecution and they look for a rescuer. The problem is the rescuer sooner or later, over time, becomes the persecutor. So yeah. you move, you're you moving from the drama triangle into the empowerment dynamic, which is you have an individual that sees themselves as, I'm the problem solver. I can fix this problem. I just need help. So the rescuer takes on the role of a coach that challenges them. And then you have the persecutor, which is now viewed as a challenge. So instead of seeing themselves as a victim, they see themselves as the ability to come up with creative solutions, which is what you said earlier about being creative, being a problem solver, and then finding someone that can Im- and give them encouragement, uh, help them look into the solutions for themselves, and then look at challenges instead of looking at challenges as what they are versus a persecution.
0: Okay. So now we've got we've recruited well with the winning qualities. We've recruited a diverse team that is adaptable and uh, has a common language. They're interdependent, so they rely on one another, but Mm -hmm. they can do their job successfully. What are the other missing qualities that we need to build a strong negotiating team, Dan?
2: Well, now we have to start changing people's perceptions. Or you might even say, not even change, align. I like that verb the best. So we're aligning people's perceptions. There's two things that I try to do with new folks. And this is for my police team, but also for the people that Alan and I work with. There's two things they have to realize and begin to perceive. And one is this, that everything we do with human beings where they can say no is a negotiation. So we have to look for those opportunities and take advantage of them and, and really open up our mind about what negotiations are. And then the second thing is to begin to see that like human communications and human decisions are almost not just primarily, not just majority, but I would say almost exclusively emotional activities. So if we can begin to, when we listen, for instance, listen for emotions and understand the emotional dynamic first, you'll interpret everything else better. And you'll make a connection with people as you listen. And you'll have opportunities to negotiate with them for value. If you can begin to look at behavior as primarily an adaptive emotional activity, then you'll understand it faster and there'll be opportunities there and you'll avoid obstacles. And it's also a safety factor in law enforcement. You'll begin to make better safety decisions. But that's it, so look at, look at the world as a world of negotiation opportunities and then begin to understand that human beings primarily interact, decide, communicate in the emotional realm first. If you can do that, you can be a really awesome negotiator, and it, it helps it, culture.
0: It, it's really interesting. The number of times I have conversations with people where they see other human beings as a utility, a resource,
2: Yeah,
0: don't recognize them as human beings, and they think they do, but they think they're the job that they occupy, and they spend time so focused on the KPIs, the MBOs, uh, what they're being Mm -hmm. measured on, they don't focus on what actually drives other human beings. And I think this is where great salespeople, great negotiators stand apart, because they really get to the root cause of why another human being is behaving in the way that they are, irrational as it might seem to you. To them, it's perfectly logical and reasonable. So... What do you teach people to do to really start developing that empathy and that those human communication qualities, Alan?
1: We'll back up a little bit. And when you talk about empathy, and there's a lot I've noticed in the last uh, year or two, there's a lot of talk about people talking about empathy, right? How important empathy is. I think what people are missing is that there's different types of empathy. Absolutely. This compassionate, emotional, and cognitive empathy, and what Dan and I train our students and our clients on is cognitive empathy and how to use it in their profession, how to be effective as leaders. Because we define it well, cognitive empathy would be something uh, like we have two different we have two different definitions. Dan, go and ahead. Okay. okay. Well,
0: let, let's both hear work. both of them. So let's hear Alan's. I'll, one, and I'll then defer we'll to Alan. First. Alan's
2: got the correct definition, and then I have a wrong one.
1: I don't know about that. I know more about uh, the cognitive empathy. And cognitive empathy is the ability to recognize, label, and to modify one's behavior based on that. That would be something like what a doctor would do. That is what a negotiator would do. If I'm talking to you, Marcus, and I recognize that I said something that irritated you, the first step is to be aware that you are irritated. Second is the ability to find and uh, go on a granular level and find what emotion that is. And then what I can do that can influence that emotion that you're you're experiencing. That's what I consider as cognitive. Uh, Compassionate empathy and uh, uh, emotional empathy. One is, I don't know which one is which, okay? I just know that one of them is they get so empathetic Told us the other the, the counterpart that they start feeling the emotions that the other person is feeling to the point where they align and may actually behave and act as their counterpart. Okay, they get influenced. They get sad. They cry. If the other person is sad and crying, they get sad and cry as well. Then they, I think the compassionate one is someone like Mother Teresa, seeing the pain of other people, but having the ability to go and serve them. They It motivates them and it activates them to serve or to do something about it. Cognitive empathy could move towards compassionate, but it doesn't have to. We can function without being so empathetic that we have to feel compelled to serve the other person. Does that make sense? It's an agreement. I can recognize the other person is upset. And in Dan's case, maybe took a hostage. Or in my case, I recognize that they're upset with my client and they don't wanna do business. And we can can work with those emotions, but it doesn't mean that I'm now gonna do everything that I can, even to the point of compromising, to serve them. This is where a assertiveness comes in. Like a doctor, Excellent. in order to be effective, will say, OK, you're, you're you're in pain. You lost your arm, but I can still stitch it up. I can heal you without feeling your pain and sitting there and crying with you.
0: This is what Mark Gulston refers to as surgical empathy. And he uses a, a really simple framework, FUD, but slightly different, which is, Dan, I sense that you're frustrated. Is that a fair statement? and that you're disappointed, sorry, and that you're unhappy, and that you're disappointed. And taking them through that step, those three steps, enables people to give them their voice. And I think that's the real key. When you have empathy, not only can you understand what they're going through, but as human beings, we want other people to feel what we feel. Now, you've got to be careful, as Alan said, that you don't then become handicapped by it affecting your behavior in such a way that you lose your efficacy. Um, so Dan, can we get your wrong interpretation of what clinical empathy is?
2: I think leaders set themselves up for a lot of problems when they think of empathy as a skill, and this is where I know I'm probably in the minority. I, there There are whole industries now where they try to help uh, leaders become more empathetic. I think that the skill in that is listening. I think if you listen well to people, then you create the opportunity to be empathetic. And if you don't listen well to people, it's going to be really, really, really hard to form anything we would describe as empathy. There's definitely empathy that is emotionally contagious. And, and that is the kind of empathy that has no business in a negotiation. And honestly, I would try to avoid it even in your personal life, because it's not, it's not any more effective than the other kinds of ways we connect with people. And all it does is it, it limits our ability to help. Like you said, Marcus, our efficacy goes way down when we get sucked into the emotion. I think that empathy is a relationship that forms when we listen really well to people and they decide that we care about them. So I think empathy is, is a decision. is a perception that forms in, in, in the mind of the person who is in need of the empathy and That's unpopular because it means that we can do everything that we think is really empathetic and the other person can reject it. But that's been my experience for 20 years in law enforcement is we can do everything we can to try to help somebody and then they reject it. And why? Because they decided we didn't care about them. So So, what's that mean? It It means if you work on your listening habits, you're working on your empathetic ability.
0: So that's that's exactly what I wanted to uh, to finish on, which is how do you develop your people's listening habits. What advice would you give? Because listening is a, an almost lost art, mm-hmm. and it, fundamentally, I I believe it should be something that is taught at school. Questioning and listening are two things that I don't really believe that uh, children are taught well. So by the time they no. reach adulthood, they're essentially <laughs> listening for gaps so that they can be heard. And the quality of questions is poor as well. The quality of questioning in sales is generally atrocious. Yeah. So what advice would you give to leaders to teach their people how to listen with genuine surgical empathy or cognitive empathy?
2: I would just say this. There are proven, you have I mean, you mentioned a technique with FUD, but there, there are eight techniques to listening and we've known them for a long time. You go back to Carl Rogers with active listening and his work. We're talking like the 1970s in the United States. Uh, you have Schlossberg and, and uh and Boltz, who then make that a, a field practitioners endeavor with uh, the New York Police Department, hostage negotiation team. And then it's been developed through the FBI's efforts ever since. So I mean these things are known. Uh, Chris Voss became popular just by repackaging two or three of them and highly effective, right? But he was trained in all eight. I was trained in all eight. Alan knows all eight. So there's there's a proven methodology, but this is more important. You're not going to solve your listening problem with with knowledge. You can't go read Carl Rogers' wonderful little pamphlet on active listening. You can't go read Boltz or or Schlossberg's or even Boss's book and master listening. It it takes hard work. It takes more than training. It takes coaching. It takes a culture and the right kinds of teachers to put in the time, get the stress inoculation. Have some really awkward failures where you learn and build new habits. Listening is at the, at, the, at the core of it. Listening is the ultimate communication habit.
0: So, where can people learn these skills with you guys,
1: Alan? There's a few places that they can learn from Dan and myself, and joining the, the, tribe. the tribe is the cheapest uh, way to do it. It's free. Another way is uh, getting the, the material like the ebooks from our website. If they're interested in coaching from Dan and myself, the best thing is just to reach out by email. We'll do an evaluation and, and uh, have a discussion and see whether it makes sense to join a, join a group coaching. If not, there are other free resources that we can uh, direct them to. So having a conversation will probably be the best in that case.
0: What, what's your email address, Alan?
1: Mine is Alan, A-L-L-A-N, at 88, the number 88, owls, O-W-L-S, like the bird, dot com. So that's Alan at 88owls.com. And
2: Dan? Mine is Dan, D-A-N, dot Oblinger, O-B-L-I-N-G-E-R, at gmail.com.
0: Excellent. Alan, Dan, thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this conversation and you found it insightful, then please get in touch with Alan and Dan. Join their negotiation tribe. I've seen it, it's fantastic. And God knows most of you need the help. So (laughs) if if you struggle to get people aligned with you, if you struggle to be heard, if you struggle to listen, then these guys provide some fabulous resources And they come highly recommended. And if you want to get in touch with me, then email me, marcus at laughs-last.com or contact me through LinkedIn. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.